Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today, my guest is Thomas Gaston, whose book is called Dynamic Monarchianism, The Earliest Christology. Dr. Gaston earned his PhD from Oxford University, and this book is one of the fruits of that labor. In this interview, we talked about the earliest dynamic monarchians, including Ebionites and Theodotus, as well as how Logos incarnational Christology took off under the influence of Middle Platonism in the writings of Justin Martyr and his doctrinal successors. Dynamic monarchians affirm the supremacy of the Father as the only true God and that Jesus was miraculously conceived, but did not pre-exist. The term more or less refers to what we call today biblical Unitarians, but typically applies to Christians that held this view in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. Here now is episode 528, Dynamic Monarchianism, the Earliest Christology, with Thomas Gaston. Hey there, I'm Sean Finnegan, the host of Restitutio, and today my guest is Dr. Thomas Gaston, who holds a PhD in theology from the University of Oxford, a uh, pretty obscure school nobody's ever heard of. Um, just kidding. He's a specialist in historical Christology and early Christianity, and he's the author of Dynamic Monarchianism, the earliest Christology, and then you have a question mark <laughs> in the subtitle there. Published by Theophilus Press, the imprint of the Unitarian Christian Alliance. Dr. Gaston, welcome to Restitutio. Thanks, Sean. Nice to be here. So I was thinking you could begin just by introducing yourself and telling us about your journey of faith and your interest in Christology in particular. Could you get us started there? Sure. Yeah. So born into the Christelphian community. So that's my background. I've been a Christelphian most of my life. I was baptized at 16 into that community and have been part of that ever since and have been engaged as a lay speaker within that community. My interest in Christology, particularly from an academic perspective, I mean, I did a bachelor's in philosophy, but as part of that, I was able to take a one module of early Christianity from the classics department. And that really got me interested in that sort of historical side of, of Christianity. And then I went on to do a master's at the University of Birmingham, where I was able to explore a little bit further into the developments that were taking place in the second and third century, and particularly in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity. And that was, for me, able to bring an academic focus to the sort of things that was interesting to me from my Christian upbringing about the differences between what we believe um, and what mainstream Christianity believes in, in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity and really sort of bring out some of the ideas about where this might be coming from. And then when I got to do my doctorate at Oxford, this was exactly what I was looking at was where does effectively where does the doctrine of trinity come from um if it's not coming from the bible if it's not coming from the apostles well where did it come from and exploring that particularly in relation to the influence of platonism on christians in the second and early third century um so that's what i was doing academically and then from that obviously created an interest having looked at it from the perspective of those Christians who were beginning to teach something like the Trinity, that really sparked interest in me in trying to understand, well, 
what was the other side like you know who were who are who the people who were not saying that you know who were saying the opposite in in that same period which then sort of sparked the research that led to the book so let's talk about the book a little bit what are you hoping to accomplish with this book it's intended to be academically rigorous so it's intended to be something that you know an academic historian of this period would read and at least take seriously in relation to the, the arguments that it's presenting so i hope at least that those people who are in sort of engaging it from that perspective see the detail and the care that's gone into it and and at least take the argument seriously even if that's not quite where they are but it's also intended at least to be accessible to a to a more general reader and to give people a bit of more perspective about this period and my hope is that i came at this from a period in part just an out of interest my sort of historical interest is like what can we know about people like this i guess you know unitarians in this period those who are they you know what can we actually know from our sources about them and how how widespread might this be as a phenomenon but then obviously the book tries to do something else which is tries to pin those different individuals together into a single narrative as to like where might they be coming from and the, the you know the subtitle of the book earliest christology question mark is about whether actually like the overarching narrative that joins these people together is that actually they were representing a tradition that had existed within christianity all the way back to the earliest apostles so i'm um, hopefully that narrative is convincing to people and actually sort of gives a different story than maybe the one that we sometimes hear from mainstream Christ christianity in terms of like the doctrine of the Trinity being early and apostolic. Let's talk about orthodoxy for a moment. Uh, in your book early on, you wrote that you don't like the terms proto-orthodox or incipient orthodoxy. Uh, wh why not? What's the problem there? Yeah, that's a really good point. So it's, it's a really challenging word and it's a really challenging problem when you're dealing with this from a historical perspective about trying not to project modern categories on historical figures so even if we assume that we know what we mean by orthodoxy now in the modern setting as opposed to heresy for example or as opposed to sort of non-mainstream views applying those to historical figures might be taken to apply imply at least that there was an established orthodoxy at that period or that the doctrinal position of these characters were similar to modern orthodoxy the problem I have with proto-orthodoxy as a term, I understand why people use it because it sort of is indicative of those people who are beginning to think along the lines of what would later become orthodoxy. But it implies a sort of directionality and maybe even a sort of inevitability about the direction of travel in, in terms of the development of those ideas in that period. And that can be misleading. So if you think about Someone like Justin Martyr, who I talk quite a lot about in the book, who is a Christian in the mid to late second century. He is developing ideas that I guess one might describe as proto-Orthodox in the sense that he has a sort of triad of Father, Son and Spirit. So he's pointing in the direction of what would become the Trinity. But he is not, strictly speaking, a Trinitarian himself in terms of that Orthodox terms. And it's far from obvious that his views should have become the mainstream. They do, in fact, become mainstream because, in part because he gets the support of the church in Rome and other influential figures in Christianity that period. But it's entirely plausible that something else might have happened and it gone a different way. So cautious as that sort of 
of that idea of assuming that these ideas were inevitable in any sense. Yeah. Or that um, he was in some sense half baked. Yeah. You know, he I'm sure he thought his views were mature and well established. He 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 probably wouldn't have said, Oh, I'm gesturing at some other greater understanding that I don't quite know what to call yet. You know, he Oh yeah, not at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he would, he would, he would have strenuously argued that he was right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And if you did have someone with Justin Martyr's Christology today, almost all mainstream Trinitarian Christians would recognize that person as not proto-Orthodox. They would recognize that person as heretical. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So not. that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not... <laughs> absolutely. His view is not really compatible with the Trinity. From an evolutionary point of view, you could say, oh, well, this is one step along yep. the way of development. Yeah, I, I can see what, you, what you're saying here. Even just this word orthodox is very problematic for me because it, it means right opinion or straight yeah. opinion, right? <laughs> so, uh, of course, I think I'm orthodox and, and you think you're orthodox. Everyone thinks they're orthodox, right? So, like, I'm, yeah. I'm a little loath to take that term and apply it to someone uh, whose beliefs I think are incorrect. Yeah. But whatever. We don't always get to pick how scholars use terms, right? Exactly. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about dynamic monarchians. Who in the world are dynamic monarchians? Why is it that people, even who hold to uh, Unitarian views today, have never even heard of this term? as well as like why you why you chose that for the title of your book. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. So it's probably worth emphasizing that, you know, dynamic monarchianism is a modern term. And when I say modern, I mean sort of, you know, 18th, 19th century, I don't mean, you know, but it wasn't a term that people in the second or third century would have referred to themselves as. And in one sense, it's sort of a, it's a made up category in the sense that there was no one single body or you know community that the people that this term represents there's there's no sort of church of dynamic monarchianism or anything and, and people wouldn't have recognized that as a thing in that period and i picked the term because it is a recognized term because it's you know it's something that is known within scholarship but i intentionally tried to give a little bit more definition as to the sort of people that i was interested in um, and attempting to cover in, in the book. So just to talk about the term itself. So monarchian refers to this idea of, of one ruler, I suppose, but it's it's about those Christians who had a view of God where effectively there was just one person at the top. And then scholars would, would have distinguished two different types of monarchian in this period, the dynamic monarchians and, and the modal monarchians. Modal monarchians sort of maintained this one ruler perspective within God by effectively subsuming sons and spirit under the father by effectively making them three different roles of the same person. So they sort of deviate from what would become the, the Trinity in that way. Whereas the dynamic monarchians, I mean, this word dynamic is referring to power. And it's the idea that from the perspective of the scholars who coined this term, this idea that Jesus is a man who is given power at his baptism at the Holy Spirit, and that's how he becomes special, whilst, you know, and the monarchian part is referring to the idea that the father is is overall, and the son never sort of ascends to that same level of equality. 
with the father. So it's a bit of a convoluted term. I was trying to pull out those specifically, those people in this period who did not believe in the pre-existence of Jesus, but who were, I'm going to use that awful term orthodoxy again, but were otherwise sort of recognised as sort of mainstream orthodox Christians. So these weren't people who were, you know, making up their own scriptures or inventing their own prophets or anything like this. These were people who, you know, accepted the core tenets of, of Christianity as per other Christians of this period. But for them, Jesus didn't pre-exist before his birth in a, in a personal sense. Uh, would you say that today we essentially use the term biblical Unitarian to refer to dynamic monarchians, or would you want to point out some sort of distinction there? It's a great point, and it sort of struggles around that term Unitarianism, and, you know, I think a sort of illustrative of sort of the struggles that we come to with sort of picking correct names for things and, you know, the terms we want to use and maybe, you know, slapping biblical in the front of Unitarianism to try and distinguish it from other sort of you know, ways around it. Unitarianism, I think, illustrates that same problem. I think broadly this we're talking about the same sorts of, of, of people in relation to their Christology. One of the things that the book doesn't do too much of is try and describe the other theological positions of the individuals that we're describing. So I'm, I'm primarily trying to pick them out in relation to their Christology. Does not mean to say that we wouldn't have had disagreements about other things, although, you know, this is the main thing that we they are known for in history. So who, who knows how much we can say about their other theological positions. But yes. So much of the development that eventually made dynamic monarchians look uh, strange to later Christians had to do with the prologue of the Gospel of John. Uh, I was wondering, because you, you cover this briefly uh, in part one, I wonder if you could just tell us what do you think John's original audience thought John was saying in the prologue of the gospel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I what I find interesting, like having looked at the gospel of John from a historical perspective and from a sort of academic perspective is, I think we as a modern audience think that this passage is difficult or confusing. And I'm not entirely sure that John's original audience would have found it difficult or confusing I think they probably would have got what he was trying to say what's important for at least one of the sort of contexts for the gospel of John is the wisdom literature of the intertestamental period and even within the scriptures in the proverbs we meet this character of wisdom who is there at creation with God and it's you know and um, is this sort of extended metaphor for wisdom within that book of Proverbs, sort of advocating wisdom to the readers, because that's the mode by which God created the world. And that figure of wisdom occurs in texts or in the intertestamental period, like the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Ben Sirach. So this was a known sort of literary device throughout this period. Wisdom is there at creation. Wisdom is embodied in the law, in, in the prophets. So this idea of a personified figure who is there at creation and helping God create, um, and then is it dwelling with God's people in the tabernacle, in the law, you know, as a mode of revelation for God. This was, you know, just standard fare for Jews of the first century. The, the thing that makes John's prologue different from what Jews of this period were expecting is when, in verse 14, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because up till now, I don't think 
the wisdom literature has ever sort of seen wisdom as embodied in a single person. But what John is doing here is is absolutely trying to sort of continue that narrative onwards of saying, and here is like the embodiment of that same wisdom principle that was there in way back in Proverbs and, and throughout God's revelation in the Old Testament. Here it, it is now embodied in a single person. Whilst John's prologue seems abstract to us, it's actually just the same theme that he runs with throughout the rest of his gospel, which is the manifestation of God through a single individual. Like so when Philip says later on in the gospel, you know, to Jesus, show us the Father, and Jesus is like, Well, haven't you been with me this so long? You know, you don't need me to show you the Father because you I've been with you effectively and it's that same concept expressed in different words of you know jesus manifests god that language of the logos in john's prologue is doing exactly that same thing of trying to convey this concept of the way that god manifested himself through the man jesus christ very good so let's switch to numinius because you bring him into the discussion and Probably most of my audience will not be familiar with this uh, philosopher. Uh, right. So who was he and why did you, why in the world did you begin your treatment of Logos theologians with a non-Christian? So, th I mean, this is this is where it gets really fascinating. So Numenius of Apamea is a second century Platonist. Um, he'd be classified as a middle Platonist by uh, historians of this period. So between the sort of classical the old academy of Platonism and then the Neoplatonists from Plotinus onwards in the third century, we get this sort of period that's classified as the middle Platonist period, which is basically this, this jumble of different figures that we know from history that don't really seem to be particularly coherent or joined up in any particular way, but are all Platonists in the broadest sense of the word, but are interesting because firstly, because they are beginning to put together thoughts and, and ideas that will become Neoplatonism, but also because they are contemporary with these really important developments that are happening within Christianity in this period. And Numenius is significant because he is contemporary, both chronologically and geographically, with Justin Martyr. So Justin Martyr originates from, from Syria, which is where Numenius is from. So it's entirely plausible that they knew each other, that Justin learned from Numenius, or at least, you know, that they were contemporaries and, and, and had, had had discussions. They are also contemporary in terms of like in terms of time period. So there's nothing, no obstacle to the idea that Numenius would have known Justin or you know, vice versa. What's interesting about Numenius in relation to what's happening in Christianity in this period and where Justin's thought will go is that Numenius is developing this effectively a triad of what he calls three gods. And for him, there is the first God, the one is so transcendent that he cannot interact directly with the world. And so there needs to be these other intermediary principles to interact with the world, particularly in relation to the knowledge of God. And it's this second God, whom Eumenius will often call the nous, the mind, that communicate that sort of is this intermediary between the first God and the world and is particularly in relation to the knowledge of God. Now, for Justin, this is important because it's answering for Justin what is a really significant problem that he perceives in what we would now call an epistemological problem, like how do you have knowledge of God? 
So this was a problem for the Platonists. And this is, you know, Justin says this is the reason why he stops being a Platonist and starts being a Christian, because he says there's this insurmountable problem of how do you get knowledge of God? For some Platonists, the reason why you could have um, uh, a knowledge of God was to do with the transmigration of the soul, the idea that your soul was immortal and that, you know, it had existed prior to your birth and, and, and had been incarnated in you when you were born. And so from many Platonists, they're like, well, this idea, the fact that you've kind of got this part of you um, that pre-existed your birth gives you this sort of like means you're sort of co-natural with the divine. And so you can somehow get a knowledge of God that way. And, and for Justin, that's not going to work because Justin comes to reject the idea of this sort of eternal soul. Instead, he's got to come up with this other idea as to how we get knowledge of God. And part of that is revelation, the revelation he sees in the scriptures. But for a second thing that Justin wants to do is he doesn't want to say that only those people who know the scriptures can have knowledge of God. So he's got to come up with his other idea. And that is the idea of the logos, the idea of a form of knowledge, reason, human, you know, your human reason, your, your, your rational faculty that is incipient within all human beings. And that can be used to access the divine. And here he's picking up on themes from Eumenius about the, the way that the knowledge of God is seeded within mankind. One of the changes that Justin introduces, and this picks back into what we were just talking about, John's gospel, even though John is using this sort of extended metaphor of wisdom to talk about the manifestation of God in, in Jesus, because he uses that word logos, which has you know resonances of reason, rationality. For him, for, for Justin, he can pick up on that word and say, okay, this is similar to what I'm seeing over here in Eumenius in relation to how human beings can sort of have knowledge of God. So for Justin, then this, you know, the, the son, the second principle, this sort of second place underneath the transcendent father can be that mechanism by which human beings can reach knowledge of God through the seeding of the Logos into mankind. So, yeah, that's why, again, how Numenius becomes really important in relation to like the development of the Logos. It kind of reminded me of an experience I had. I took a class on historical theology at uh, Boston University, and my professor, his first assignment to us was to read Plotinus's Aeneids for like two or three of our first class assignments were, were and he likened it to being slapped in the face with a dead fish, which I, I strongly agree with that, not because of how strong Plotinus expresses himself, but because of how obscure he is to a modern reader uh, reading uh, the Neoplatonic world. And, you know, it's interesting because he had us reading a lot of these similar ideas that you find in Numenius of emanations and you have the, the one, the monad, the monarch, if we could put it that way, since we're talking about dynamic monarchianism. And then you have the noose, and then you have the, the world soul and whatnot. Basically, my professor's point in doing that was to sort of sensitize us to the thought structures that were basically in the water in the time of especially origin of Alexandria, because, you know, Plotinus and origin likely had the same teacher, Ammonius, Saccus, and so forth. But you're, you're, you're moving the ball backwards here uh, about a century, I think, to 
the second century where Numenius is saying a lot of these similar kinds of, and he talks about Usia, you know, he has this triad and he has, you know, a lot to do with logos. Justin picks these, these ideas up. It's just sort of like the, the intellectual concepts available and yep. whether he got it from Numenius or not, I don't know if you can really prove that, but you can use Numenius as sort of an indication of what ideas were current in that world, in that place during that time. Whether he picks it up from Numenius or not probably doesn't matter, right? No, not, not at all. Not at the end of the day. He, you're right. The, the point is that these ideas are in the air, you know, in terms of like the system and the uh, that they're using, but also the sort of language and the analogies that are being used by Justin Numinius. There's enough similarity there that lead us to sort of think that, you know, even if Justin doesn't know Numinius directly, he knows the same ideas, he knows the same thoughts. So he's getting it from, from somewhere, right? He's getting it from that same thought world. There's a profound anxiety among ancient Christian thinkers and other kinds of thinkers, especially the Gnostics, over the issue of eminence and transcendence. And how in the world can God be the creator? And this is not a problem that any of us struggle with today. If you look at the early Gnostics, Secret Apocryphon of John, or if you look at uh, what survives of Valentinus or of um, uh, Justin, you know, David Brocky wrote a great book about this. You, you see, you see, they're all kind of doing the same thing. They're all kind of answering the question, well, how in the world can we get God to create when we know God can't do anything because we're good Platonists? And Platonists know that a change is thereby an, an introduction of an imperfection. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're all like struggling with this. And this Logos concept is just like right there as, an, as a ready-made answer. And then just, Numenius wouldn't have done this, but Justin is the guy that makes a Christological connection to the Logos. How does that develop as we move forward through Athenagoras and, and Irenaeus and Origen and so forth? For Justin, he he's, seems to be the first one who's made this connection between the Logos in John's Gospel and that same sort of rational principle that the Platonists were talking about. And so he essentially makes this Logos into a, into a person in a more powerful sense than maybe, maybe the Platonists would have done. And he obviously brings that into Jesus. Now, obviously, then has Christological significance because now this Logos is a pre-existent person and he's becoming now the second god. There's a couple of sort of then debates that have to take place or some things that need to be ironed out, I suppose, for this thought, which is if the Logos is an emanation from God, does that mean that he is created? You know, does he have a beginning in time and is he therefore created or and therefore not eternal? Secondly, then, what does it mean for God to sort of emanate his rational faculty, his reason out from himself? And so there's a couple of different ways that people will go on this in relation to whether or not they want to say that the Logos is eternal or not, whether that sort of moment of emanation is a beginning in time or not, a creation or not. And then to what extent they want to say that the Logos is God's rational faculty that sort of exists within God and is emanated out of God. And to what extent they want to say that this, this Logos is a separate person and they're not that to be fair, entire, always entirely clear. I think Athenagoras is probably, as a philosopher, is probably 
the most clear in relation to where he wants to take this. Whereas, for example, Irenaeus, who is not a philosopher, he's a theologian, is very equivocal and ambiguous. As he, you know, he doesn't want to say the sun had a beginning, but he also doesn't want to say anything concrete um, in relation to what he thinks the origin of, of the Logos is. Yeah, there's that famous passage in uh, against heresies where he yeah. says, you know, it's impious to to say anything about the generation of the logos because he, he probably, my guess is, he's been fighting with all these Gnostics and uh, he knows that, like basically anything you say about it, <laughs> you're gonna get into trouble. So he just like piously says, "Oh, it's a mystery, and uh, who knows, right?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Irenaeus is fascinated because he, like, he, as I say, he, he knows what he's against. He's against Gnosticism, and he doesn't want to push the Logos in a direction that sounds too much like the sort of eons and the, all the sort of different intermediaries that the Gnostics were coming up with. He wants to avoid that. He is trying to maintain this same level of for the for the Logos that Justin did the same same sort of significance. So he ends up very ambiguous in relation to what what he's actually saying, but he is. Nevertheless, you know, Irenaeus is incredibly influential on like um, the development of thought of that period, particularly you know, his book Against Heresies is, is quite clear in terms of trying to establish orthodoxy in this period by effectively saying or you know, identify all the people he's, he's against. So there's a couple of things that you know, happen as well in this period, which is in relation to the Logos. It's really sorry, sort of origin who begins to sort of solidify some of this thinking out in relation to the logos and trying to work out i guess like the risk of introducing the logos as this second principle under the father is that you end up with the second god and you know justin calls him another god he calls him a second god and even even origin will do that but origin also wants to say no no but there is also only one god because after all he's a christian and he's a monotheist and trying to reconcile that problem as to like how can this logos be a second god and yet maintain only one god are going to is going to be a problem that's going to sort of they're going to wrestle with for a while but this is where we begin to see sort of i guess like the trajectory of the trinity moving away from this hierarchical pattern that justin has of you know, father then the son then the spirit much like the middle platonists and moving towards this sort of co-equal trinity of the later period trying to move away from you know, exactly that problem of, of more than one god and there's a lot of detail on that in in the book if people want to know more about it as far as the dynamic monarchians though which uh, we kind of got away from them a bit in this conversation let me ask you a question that uh, i'm curious to hear your answer uh, if it is answerable and that is who was the first dynamic monarchian so that that is a difficult question. So I guess it <laughs> depends how you define your terms, doesn't it? Um, so the I mean the earliest one that we traditionally identify as being a dynamic monarchy is is the Theodotus of Byzantium in the middle to late second century. But we know about him, and he's called out as such specifically because he is excommunicated for his beliefs. He is called out for them and, and regarded as a heretic afterwards. So in that sense, he is the first, in the sense of the first person to formally be excommunicated for denying the pre-existence of Jesus. But obviously the case I'm going to make in the book is that actually dynamic monarchianism was 
part of the mainstream up until that point. And so in one sense, it's sort of a false question, you know, this, who is the first dynamic monarchianism? Maybe it was Jesus, right? Maybe Jesus was the first dynamic monarchian. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a totally loaded question, totally unfair, which is why it was fun to ask. But uh, <laughs> I couldn't resist. Uh, weren't the authors of the Gospels dynamic monarchians? You know, you, no. you could make that case as well, or uh, maybe the Apostle Paul, certainly Jesus, all fair game. But within church history itself, Theodotus is, is where the, the topic really shows up big on the radar. But you do talk about some of these Jewish Christian groups, too, and they would presumably predate Theodotus, right? The whole question of Ebionites, other Ebionites, and Nazarenes is very difficult because our sources are confusing and conflicted. Um, But I wonder if you could just say a couple of words or maybe put out a hypothesis on what you think about the Jewish Christians in the late 1st, early 2nd century. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, like, let's put a couple of markers down historically. So obviously we know that the earliest Christians would have been Jewish Christians. Um, That's where where Christianity comes from. And we know from Acts of the Apostles that they are called, the Christians are called Nazarenes very early on. And so you've kind of got that within the sort of first half of the first century. And then way in the sort of late second century, Irenaeus calls the Ebonites, who identifies as being Jewish Christians. He calls them out as heresy, heretics, in part because they insist on keeping the law of Moses, and also because they ha- have a, a view of Jesus that he is the son of Mary and Joseph. So the Ebonites in general, by that description, would therefore have denied the pre-existence of Jesus. I slightly move away from them in the book because of that sort of, because they, at least according to Irenaeus, deny the virgin birth, and I'm sort of trying to distinguish them from the dynamic monarchians as I'm trying to sort of identify this group who would have accepted sort of all of the sort of mainstream Christian books and not, you know, pick their own scriptures or whatever else. But trying to sort of join the dots between those two things, the earliest Jewish Christians that we find in, you know, Jerusalem and the Acts of the Apostles and then these Ebonites is a tricky job. The other bits and pieces that we know about from history, we sort of know of Origen who refers to this sort of group of other Ebonites, you know, this thing seems to be the second group. And then we know from Jerome, he refers to these sort of Nazarenes. And there seems to be a confusion amongst these writers as to, is Ebonites just what people call Jewish Christians in general? Or are there sort of multiple groups of Jewish Christians? And if so, do they sort of have these have these different names? The, the conclusion that I sort of pushed towards in the book um, I argue on the basis of the evolution of the Gospels. So we know by the fourth century there is a gospel known as the Gospel of the Ebonites. It seems to be based upon the canonical Gospels, but you know has been edited to remove the virgin birth story, the infancy narratives. So we know that thing exists. We also know from this period that there was a gospel circulating in Hebrew as well. A lot of this is conjecture, but it's at least plausible that this was very, very early. And there's at least a case to be made that maybe this Hebrew gospel was the earliest gospel and sort of predates Matthew, Mark and, and Luke. There is a tradition very early on about Matthew's gospel, for example, that Matthew's gospel was originally written in Hebrew. People who know about Greek 
will tell you that the canonical gospel ascribed to Matthew in our New Testament probably isn't probably didn't have a Hebrew original. It's not that sort of Greek. And again, I'm depending on other people to tell me such things. So that raises the question then, well, if if there was a gospel that was ascribed to Matthew written in Hebrew, well, could it be this this Hebrew gospel that was, was circulating on? So if you've kind of got this this history of gospels where you've got an early Hebrew gospel and then much, much later, you've got a gospel of the Ebonites that seems to be dependent on the canonical gospels and heavily edited. That seems to suggest that sort of development of that gospel seems to suggest a development of a community that starts quite firmly within that sort of community of the early Christians and then deviates away. And you could at least plausibly hypothesize about a group of Christians who faced with that controversy we find in Acts about like whether or not the Gentiles can be incorporated into the Christian community or not, you can well imagine that there was a, a rump of that community that just said, nope, we're not having it. We're going to stick to the law. We're going to stick to circumcision. We're going to be, you know, we're going to be those, you know, be Christians who stick to the law as well. And so it's at least plausible that's where the Ebonites are coming from. They're sort of this rump of people who never really gave up, gave up on the law of Moses, never really gave up on circumcision, wanted to continue down that road. And maybe for some of them, then actually even things like the virgin birth were too difficult. And so they had to sort of amend their views and amend the scriptures that they were using precisely to sort of continue to fit into that theological framework. Whereas the majority of Jewish Christians, i.e. those who were sort of ethnic Jewish but became Christians, were actually more within, let's call the mainstream of Christianity at this period, and maybe they were the ones who answered to this term Nazarene, um, as Jerome uses it. So I think you've kind of got that spectrum of opinion, I think, within the Jewish Christian community within this period, where the sort of Ebonites, as Irenaeus knows them, are sort of at that extreme end in relation to their theological perspectives. Yeah. And Irenaeus is predisposed to pick the clearest example of the most extreme view of any particular group that he's exposing as heretical because it makes his case. You know, he's not going to pick some milder form uh, that is is roughly compatible. He's going to fixate on the, the extremes. So you talk about the the Jewish Christians, you talk about Theodotus, you talk about Beryllus of Bostra, Artemon, Paul of Samosata, you know, kind of like the, the leading advocates or representatives of the dynamic Monarchians. Of course, we don't have time to go through each of those in this conversation, but I just wonder if you could give me a, sort of an overall picture. Like, if, if you didn't have the burden of scholarly restraint, summarize how you see the whole thing developing one way or the other during yeah. the period, how would you put it together in, in sort of a brief way? Yeah, that's really helpful. So let's put it this way. I mean, so so I guess the standard narrative about the dynamic monarchians is that they are heretics. There's a sort of a proto-orthodox, let's use that term again, um, mainstream of, you know, Trinitarian thought, and these guys are just deviating from it. I suppose that's that's a plausible scenario. A different scenario is that they are all part of one church, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that. So the, the, the narrative that I try and argue for is the idea that actually these are all 
calling on the same tradition that ex- exists within the church. And, and and broadly, what I think has happened, and you say, let's throw off the, the shackles of of academic restraint. What I what I think happened is that what we now classify as dynamic monarchianism, as though it's sort of this this separate thing, was just one of the traditions that existed within the mainstream right up until you know the, the late second century when Theodotus is, is first excommunicated. So I think that broadly there will have been Christians who held these views within churches throughout Christendom in the late first and early second century. And I think that broadly the reason why we see these figures like Borellus and Paul and, and Theodosius is not because they're coming up with something new, but because they are repeating something old. They are broadly repeating what they hold to be true. And they're coming up against something that is new, which is the Logos and the theories of Justin Martyr and then his successors. They are pushing that same doctrine on the churches. And that's where we come into conflict. Theodotus, who is originally from Byzantium, comes to Rome. He's teaching what he always thought to be true in relation to the nature of Jesus, and then eventually comes into conflict with other Christians in Rome who are now teaching these Logos ideas of Justin and others, and ultimately Theodotus loses out uh, and has to form his own church because he's no longer welcome within the Church of Rome. And we've seen these same disputes and battles happening at different points uh, at different churches from the late second century onwards until the point at which a single orthodoxy can emerge, which ultimately closes out the option for dynamic monarchians to exist within mainstream Christianity. I I wonder if you would agree with this analogy. Imagine the scenario where a tick affixes itself to a human body, bites someone, and injects Lyme disease into that person, right? So for a while, that person has you know, a healthy body, but an invader from middle Platonism, so to speak, comes in and (laughs) injects this foreign substance into the the body. Over time, the body will succumb or uh, overcome one or the other, this, this infusion. So it seems like what you're saying is that for a while within the body of Christ, there were both, or I mean, let's be honest, there were much more than just two Christologies around, uh, especially in the second century. Uh, so there, there's all these different ideas around, and like eventually one does win out over the others. And uh, of course, the story of how that happened is uh, really more of a fourth century story, because even even as late as then, there's there's lots of people that are really uncomfortable saying that the son is eternal or yeah. saying that he is co-equal with the father but eventually the outside invader wins and uh the the body of christ is in a sense crippled with this uh this condition so uh that's kind of a morbid analogy but <laughs> i'm trying to put together what you're saying into kind of a recognizable illustration yeah yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so w- we've been talking about part one of your book. Uh, just give the audience a teaser for parts two and three. You know, what can they expect to see in there? Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So part one is about trying to pull together everything that we can know about those who are explicitly identified in our sources 
as what we now call dynamic monarchianism. What I try to do in part two is project backwards from these people in the third and second centuries to try and think about what can we know about dynamic monarchianism in the early second century and late first century in this period where maybe they wouldn't have been called out specific, they wouldn't have been called out as heretics because they weren't regarded as heresy in that period. So what can we know about this period? Sort of how can we demonstrate from our sources that this Christology existed within the church and pre-existed the sort of logos theories of, of Justin. So that's what part two is about. And then part three is to try and bring that all the way back to what primitive Christology, so, you know, the teaching of the apostles, and tries to answer that sort of question that I put on the front on the cover, which is, you know, is this the earliest Christology? And so I try and argue about, firstly, like, do we see pre-existence in the earliest teachings uh, of the apostles? Do we see a form of adoptionism in relation to the Christology of the earliest apostles? And then how early is belief in the virgin birth in, in Christianity? And from that, you know, trying to sort of make the case that actually dynamic monarchianism goes all the way back right to the to the earliest apostles. Very good. So if people want to learn uh, more about this, they can get the book. I've got it here. This is uh, the second edition published by Theophilus Press. Uh, they did a nice job with this. Have you have you gotten a paper copy yet? Oh, no, I'm still waiting. You're still, yeah, it probably takes a while to get, uh, to get over the pond, as they say. Um, but uh, yeah, if you want to pick that up, you can get it at Amazon uh, or a number of other booksellers. If people want to follow you, Dr. Gaston, where would they go? Do you have a website or a social media or anything like that? Yeah, so if you thomas-gaston.com, um, it's my website, and you'll find um, all the various things that I've written over the years. Um, and you're and you're a bit omnivorous too. You're not staying in the lane of just like early Christian history, right? Not at all. Not at all. So I'm. Uh... <laughs> I appreciate that. What what else? What else have you done? So a variety of interests. I mean, I've written, so my uh, book, Historical Issues in the Book of Daniel, which came out quite a while ago, but it was completely different in the sense of it's relating to the Old Testament, obviously, and it's relating to sort of questions of history in relation to uh, what can we know about Daniel in that period. But then also from a sort of, from a completely different angle, I've also, you know, kind of work in publishing, I've written quite a lot about um, peer review and publication ethics as well. So um uh, for any of your listeners who are interested in that, they'll find articles on that as well. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today. No worries. Well, that brings this interview to an end. What did you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 528, Dynamic Monarchianism with Thomas Gaston, and leave your feedback there. Someone named Dale S. commented in on, on the Restorationist Manifesto post I put up a while back. It's actually on the homepage of restitudio.org if you want to check that out. He writes, I share your concern with what exactly the Bible, particularly the New Testament, consists of. I agree with this idea of returning to original Christianity, and I'm fully on board with restorationism in the sense described in this manifesto. However, I wonder how we should determine who the true, original Christians were, i.e., what sources should we use? As you explained, many books we consider canonical were decided by the same church whose decisions we are skeptical of. Why, for example, should we use Revelation and not the letters of Ignatius? I'm not saying we shouldn't, of course, but I want to understand what sources we consider biblical and trustworthy and authoritative. 
I do not automatically accept the concept of biblical inspiration or inerrancy simply because there is so much that we don't consider canonical. That's not to say there is not inspired or inerrant scripture, but I think we cannot simply assume the Bible assembled by the church is completely inspired without reasoning. Now, Dale was responding to somebody else, but I suppose it's my prerogative to respond to Dale as well. He is asking questions about restorationism, and really this is a tricky question and is something that separates, I think, restorationists from critical historians. A critical historian is going to set an arbitrary year, usually based on the document he or she is studying, to figure out what the Christians believed at that time. And a critical historian also will not do doctrinal synthesis. It's just not acceptable for their presuppositions to say that there might actually be a God inspiring or working behind the scenes to have multiple people produce ideas that are in some sense cohesive. They always atomize. That's just part of their methodology. But the restorationist doesn't do that. The restorationist says, all right, how do I restore authentic Christianity? When are we going back to? And really, I don't think the, there is a specific number, a specific date to go back to, but I would say that there is a specific target to go back to, and that is the target of the completion of the New Testament itself. That once the New Testament is complete, we can go to those sources, the 27 books of the New Testament, read them historically within their own context, and then evaluate our doctrines and practices today in light of what it says there. And that's essentially the goal of restorationism, and I'm certainly not the inventor of restorationism, even though my podcast is the word for restoration in Latin, restitutio, but this is uh, something that's been going on for years. You know, to a large degree, Martin Luther was doing this 500 years ago. The Anabaptists did it. Uh, The Churches of Christ movement did it in the 1800s and and going forward under the leadership of Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone. And a lot of Christian groups have done this in the 20th and now 21st centuries as well. So this is something that appeals to a lot of us where we say, look, traditions have developed and they are questionable because they're having us believe or live in ways that seem to go against what the New Testament teaches, what the scriptures portray. So that's what restorationism is, and I would suggest going back to the New Testament itself. Now, of course, Dale brings up two major, major issues when it comes to scripture and specifically the New Testament, and that is the issue of canon and inspiration. And these are two subjects that I wasn't able to get into in my How We Got the Bible class, which if you haven't checked it out, that's available on YouTube as well as on this podcast. You can scroll back to episode 330 to get part one of that series, and there's actually 24 parts within sort of three additional episodes, more focusing on Unitarian Bible translations. And you can see what I deal with there is the text itself, the transmission of the text, and the translation of the text. So I did not get into the subject of inspiration or canon. So these are two areas that I'd love to get into in the future. I don't really know when that would be at this point, and uh, would love to see if you guys have any resources, books, or 
YouTube videos or other podcasts or articles, uh, go ahead and post them on restitutio.org for this episode, 528, so that uh, I, can, I can take a look at them. But uh, essentially the idea is that God did, in some sense, ins- inspire Scripture so that what Scripture turned out to be is what he wanted it to be. Uh, as far as the mechanism goes, I think we're going to have some real difficulty defining that with any kind of precision. But then on the subject of canon, we do not want to say, oh, the Church has the authority to decide whether or not a writing is Scripture or not. Uh, that's obviously the Catholic position on canon. As Protestants, we instead formulate it this way. We say the Church detected the inspiration of God in Scripture and doesn't have the authority to decide if something's inspired or not, but simply has the responsibility to detect inspiration when it is there in a particular writing. And the process by which that is done is by looking at whether or not an apostle wrote something, whether or not it was widely used in the churches, and whether or not it agreed with what was always understood to be canonical scripture, namely the four Gospels and most of Paul's writings. So that's sort of some rough thoughts on it, but obviously there's a lot more to say. Moving on then to Glenn, who commented in on last week's episode, Should Christians Celebrate Christmas? And he writes, one thing I used to struggle with, perhaps still do, is the thought that there was an instance in the Bible where I think it was while Moses was up on the mountain and the people decided to make a golden calf but argued they were still worshiping God, as it says in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built the altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. To which God's response was rejection of that worship as it was not in accordance with what he had prescribed. I don't really understand the word Lord here. Was there Lord, or were they claiming that they were worshiping the real Lord by worshiping this calf? Regardless, they appear to be claiming to worship in ways he had not instituted. I was concerned that this whole episode meant, as people, we can convince ourselves that what we are doing is for the glory of God, but we can be kidding ourselves, lying even, and offending God if we come to him in ways that he did not decree as acceptable. He will not accept it. In fact, he will be angered by it, as in verse 10 it says, Now leave me alone so that my anger, and so forth. So many of the traditions of Christians seem to be about treating ourselves, eating, drinking, presents, catching up with friends and family, talking. While we are doing these things, do we really think about him much? How can we? Is not a more real worship God-centered in what we do? Praying, praising, singing psalms, being thankful, those actions— What has huge socializing really to do with remembering what God has done for us in Jesus? If we do these things in love, then perhaps in a roundabout way we are spending love and goodwill, but I hope whatever we do, it is what God finds acceptable, true recognition of him, and not that we just wanted to keep doing the things that feel nice for us and argue that it is for the glory of God, when in truth it's more about us. I try to take various times out during the day to think about what happened for us, but I'm not sure a lot of people make that opportunity, especially if they are the preparers of large family meals. Okay, so a lot of thoughts there, Glenn. Wow. Uh, So on the first point about the golden calf, indeed, the Israelites did declare that there would be a festival to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, 
the next day, and that was associated with worshiping a golden baby cow. And of course, God was very displeased with that, and Moses came down and beat up the statue and ground it to powder and poured it in the drinking supply and made the people consume it. Is that analogous to what Christians are doing on Christmas? I suppose if there are some Christians, and I've never heard of this, but if they're if they kind of set the tree up as an idol and what circle around it and recognize it as in some way mediating God's presence in the room, then you would have an analogy to this. You have a sense of active idolatry. But as Dr. Dale Tuggy pointed out in the episode last week, this is not at all how pretty much any Christians, at least that I've ever heard of, treat the Christmas tree. They just treat it as a decoration, a place to put the presents. And they don't bow to it. They don't dress it. They don't put it to bed at night. They don't speak to it, hoping that God will hear them because they're speaking to the tree uh, or anything like that. It's just a decoration. And it's a matter of conscience. If you don't want to have a tree, don't have a tree. I didn't have a tree for many years in my uh, marriage. Uh, Ended up getting a tree later on. And uh, now we quite enjoy the decoration in the house for a month or so. And then we get rid of it. And you can do whatever you like in that situation. This is this is not at all commanded in Scripture. It's just an optional cultural participation that you may or may not do because of your preferences. You know, what about New Year's? Do you celebrate New Year's? What do you do on New Year's? Do you stay up till midnight? Is that the only day of the year you stay up till midnight? It, didn't the pagans do that? Uh, what about going to fireworks on July 4th? Is, isn't that a display in the heavens of the glory of a rebellion against a sovereign Christian nation? Uh, what about St. Patrick's Day? Didn't St. Patrick teach the Trinity? What about Valentine's Day? Isn't that a Catholic saint or Earth Day? You know, I mean, look, you got to figure out each one of the different days and holidays that you want to celebrate or not celebrate. None of this is in the Bible. None of us should condemn Christians for not celebrating any of these things or condemn Christians for celebrating them unless they're celebrating them in a sinful way. And other than that, it's just a matter of conscience. It's a matter of culture. It's a matter of do you put your shoes on, both socks on first, and then your shoes, or you put sock, shoe, sock, shoe? Did the pagans do it that way? There are many neutral actions in life. Uh, you know, drinking coffee. Is that, is that a sinful act, action or a righteous action? Well, I might argue it's a righteous action, but that's because I'm a, a, a big fan of coffee. But <laughs> these, these are neutral things, and most of life is like that, just like having family over. Family can be difficult. Family can be a real challenge to your self-control in some situations. And in other situations, family can be a wonderful blessing and just a time of joyous eating together and talking with each other. And each person's got to figure that out. You know, some people have family members that are so toxic that it's nearly impossible to sit with that person and not sin. Okay, well... (laughs) then you have to recognize your weakness here and limit yourself in those kinds of situations. And I hope that we as Christians who are seeking not only to recover authentic Christianity, but live out our faith authentically in this age, that we would be seeking to bring Christianity into our families and to exhibit the sort of wholeness that will be endemic in the kingdom of God. 
Interestingly enough, Jesus portrays the kingdom of God as lots of eating and drinking and sitting around tables and socializing. So I don't think these actions are in any way inherently sinful or in some way questionable. Uh, I think that God made us to be social creatures and gave us each other as a community of faith, and I think it is a great blessing. Uh, When it comes to preparing large family meals, I get your point there, Glenn, that is a real burden. That is a real burden if especially it falls on just one person, and even worse so, if it falls on someone who doesn't even really enjoy doing it or want to do it, okay? So, yes, all those logistics need to be worked out. Uh, Some people go out. They go to a Chinese restaurant on a holiday because nobody wants to cook. Other people, everybody brings a potluck to the meal. Other people, they have a family member that just loves cooking, and they it's their, it's their great joy to serve a group of people, a large group of people, instead of just one or two. So, look, people just work it out however they want to work it out, and I think this is just a matter of conscience. It really has little to do with your Christianity. The only Christian aspect, really, of Christmas is if you're doing it to celebrate the birth of Christ, which I think is cool to do. What we did in my family is I read one of the birth narratives from the Gospels, and uh, then we prayed, and then we opened our presents, and and that was really simply it. It was a way to sort of bridge the divide between the act of opening presents and the birth of Christ, and some people don't even do that. They just celebrate Christmas in a purely secular sense, and I wouldn't condemn them for that. You know, I think if you celebrate Christmas in a pagan, idolatrous, or drunken, or some other sinful way, then yeah, you should definitely not do it. So I've rambled on long enough about that. Uh, If you haven't yet checked it out, take a look at last week's episode, Should Christians Celebrate Christmas? Feel free to come on the site and give your thoughts there. Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.